Why have whales evolved to have such incredibly large brains? Is a question that has puzzled researchers for a very long time. New research published in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society has shed some new light on this question and perhaps got us a little closer to the answer. In this podcast, we will hear from Matthew McCurry about this research and dive a little deeper with Hal Whitehead into some of the more complex behaviours of whales that have contributed to these incredible creatures' large brains. Welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. One killer whale decided to push a dead salmon around. You know, just swam around with a dead salmon, pushing it. And, and everybody started doing it. It was the thing to do. They learned from that whale, they learned from each other, and they all had a dead salmon after a few weeks. And so for the rest of that summer, everyone had their dead salmon and was pushing it around. And then by the fall, it was no longer cool. Everyone stopped it. You know, once or twice, individuals tried it the next year, but no, that was it. It was, you know, it, it's this pop culture, you know, that catches on is, I suppose, from a biological point of view, largely functionally irrelevant. Uh, I mean, they weren't eating these salmon. It was just a thing. On the other hand, those same killer whales have a vitally important culture in how they catch the salmon that they are going to eat. And there's been studies showing that the knowledge that they hold is really important, and particularly the knowledge that the older members, and particularly the older female members of those groups possess, is vital for them as they live their lives. And, and um, a, a very neat study has shown that in these societies, the older females tend to lead the groups, but when conditions are tough, the salmon are very scarce, then the leadership by the old females becomes even more pronounced, even more important. And this is a species, one of the very few species on earth which has a pronounced menopause. So these older females have stopped reproducing, but their knowledge is really important. What granny knows becomes vital for the rest of the group. My name's Hal Whitehead, and I've been studying whales, especially deep water whales, and especially their social systems for about 40 years now. If we look at songs now, we move over to the baleen whales. Probably most baleen whale species sing songs. And these songs vary from that of the humpback whale, which is the most complex, well, has been called the most complex vocalization of any non-human. It, it cycles with a period of 20 odd minutes. It has several hierarchical levels of structure. Um, it's a very complicated thing. But all the humpback whales in a particular ocean at a particular time sing the same song. So they learn it from each other, they sing it, and that's their thing. But that song evolves over time. So a few months later, you know, a few changes have happened. This theme has got a bit longer. That one, this note has become a bit higher. And uh, over a few years, I mean, it's not unrecognizable, but it's changed very dramatically. So that's the general pattern in the Northern Hemisphere. But in the South Pacific, you get an, a, a somewhat different pattern where you get new songs evolving. 
and sweeping through the population. So starting in Eastern Australia and then sweeping through Polynesia over a few years, this song moving gradually across um, and, and taking over from the old song. If you look at kind of the, the evolutionary tree of whales, you can kind of split them into three main groups. So there's the archaeocetes or the archaic whales, and they really kind of show that gradual transition from terrestrial hoofed ancestors that lived on land through to the, the whales that you kind of think of swimming around in the ocean. And so they're kind of the, the base of the tree. And then um, at a certain point in their evolutionary history, uh, whales split into two main groups that we see in the oceans today. So there's the toothed whales that include dolphins, killer whales, sperm whales. And then there's the baleen whales that include all of kind of the, the big filter feeders. But when you look at the, the fossil ancestors of these filter feeders, most of them had teeth. And so it's um, only kind of quite recently that baleen whales got extremely large and evolved that unique feeding style that we see. My name is Dr. Matthew McCurry, and I'm the curator of paleontology at the Australian Museum, um, as well as a lecturer at the University of New South Wales. I'm a paleontologist, um, but most of my research is, um, has focused around the, the paleobiology of organisms. So trying to understand how extinct um, species fed, kind of what, what the lives were like of these extinct creatures. So whales have some of the, the largest brains in the animal kingdom, both in terms of um, absolute size. So the, the largest brain in nature is actually the, um, the, the size of the, the sperm whale's brain. But most of my research is focused on the, the relative brain size. So um, we use measures of the, the size of the brain compared to the size of the body, which um, gives us some idea of the, the intelligence of these organisms. There's a, a few aspects of the brain that give you an, in, uh, an idea of the intelligence of organisms. If you look at um, the groups that we, we regard as intelligent, so groups like primates, some of the birds, um, cetaceans, so, so whales, we notice a few things. So they have uh, larger brains, relative to their body mass, but they also have a, a more complex structure of the brain. So they have more kind of crumpled surface to the brain, which seems to relate to intelligence. Tooth whales have this really wacky way of, of um, sensing the world around them. So they produce uh, sound at their phonic lips, which are located um, down through the blowhole and they beam it out through their head and the head actually kind of has this organ that acts somewhat like a lens to focus and direct that sound and then it bounces off um, maybe their prey or maybe the, the sea floor and they hear it back through their mandible through, through their jaws if you look at the, the anatomy of the skull you've got kind of your upper jaw and your lower jaw dolphins like um like you know bottlenose dolphins actually have this thin sheet of bone called the pan bone on the outside of their mandible and inside that area of the mandible is this fat pad and that fat pad actually transmits sound that they hear back through echolocation into the inner ear um, so that they can kind of judge how far away objects are and their shape and so they've got this really strange way of being able to to sense in dark conditions and it's really effective so um, studies have shown that they can actually use this to, to sense objects about the size of a coin from at least five metres away in water. And so people thought that the need to, to process all of that really complex sensory information might have driven the evolution of large brains. 
because um, you know we have regions of the brain that are responsible for for processing all of that information. And so I, th I think it was actually quite a valid idea. The reason that we really started thinking about doing this study is that we saw a, a massive gap in the data that was um, published before. So people have always talked about um, echolocation driving the evolution of brain size in tooth whales. But when you actually looked at the data sets, they're, they're really tooth whale heavy because people were interested in that group. Um, they really focused on collecting data from, from that branch of the evolutionary tree. But baleen whales, so the non-echolocating whales, so you see like blue whales and humpback whales um, in the oceans today, but they've actually got a, quite a diverse um, evolutionary history with lots of um, various fossil taxa. Some of them are quite small. Um, they look quite different, different to the baleen whales that we see today. And so we thought, well, no one's really looked at uh, the evolution of brain size in these non-echolocating whales. And maybe that'll actually allow us to test whether that echolocation hypothesis is actually correct. The, the stages that we went through to complete this study, we CT scanned fossil whales from around the world. So we scanned fossil specimens from Australia, from the USA, um, from Japan. And we, we were able to use this um, CT data to look inside the fossils and actually measure how large the cranial cavity is. So that's the, the space within the skull that the brain sits in. And so once we had this CT data, we could use it to estimate the, um, the size of the brain in these extinct species. The really big thing we found was that some of these um, archaic baleen whales, so the, the early ancestors of baleen whales that we see in the oceans today, actually had um, brains that were approximately equivalent in size to, to similar sized toothed whales. So that showed that um, echolocation probably wasn't driving the evolution of brain size in this group. Brain size probably started increasing far earlier. So in those archaeocetes, those archaic early whales, but brain size actually started increasing far earlier than the evolution of echolocation. And so it, it can't really explain the evolution of large brains in the group. In terms of what's driving the evolution of brain size in whales, I think it's still an open question. I think it's something that we still need to test. The, the thing that we've really found in this paper is that echolocation doesn't explain the evolution of um, large brains in whales. Um, and that leaves us with a couple of alternative hypotheses. So one is that uh, variation in feeding biology. So maybe it's that difference in feeding that was driving the, the, um, the evolution of brain size in the group. But the one that I actually think is probably most likely, likely is just that um, sociality, so living in really complex social groups, um, was driving the evolution of brain size. So that's what we see in, in groups like primates. It's what we see in groups like birds. And so I think this is kind of getting us closer to a, a more universal understanding of what's driving brain size evolution. Some of these species live in huge uh, pods. So you can get you know, up to 200 dolphins living together in a really complex social structure. Um, they're engaging with each other, they're communicating in really complex ways, they've got their own vocabulary, they've got you know, complex ways of communicating to each other. And they actually pass information down through generations as well. So you know, if they develop a, a novel way to feed or a novel, novel way to engage with the world around them, they can actually communicate and pass on that information to each other. And so I think they're all characteristics that I would regard as um, really complex um, parts of their sociality. Culture, I think, would be a, a perfect word to explain it.
My name's Hal Whitehead, and I've been studying whales, especially deep water whales, and especially their social systems for about 40 years now. And as I've studied their social structures, it became apparent to me that there was something else going on that we hadn't captured with the usual models of um, the evol of social evolution. And after a while, it became apparent that this was culture. So culture is what individuals learn from each other and then may pass on to other individuals. And as we did our own research, primarily on sperm whales, but also as we looked at the research of others, we came to the conclusion that uh, not only do the whales and dolphins have complex social structures, but also that there's really important information flowing along those social structures. So they're learning things from each other, which are vital to their lives. And, and that's, that's culture. It's very clear that both toothed whales and baleen whales uh, learn from each other and that information that they learn is really important to them. We think of ourselves, humans, as the, the, the ultimate cultural species. Why is this? And uh, so there are a number of things. There's first, there's a, uh, a bit of a paradox. Uh, one of the reasons uh, scientists think that culture evolved is that it's actually quite easy. So if you're faced with a difficult situation and you're trying to figure out what to do, do you do a lot of experimentation or so on, or do you just see what Buddy's doing and then, and, and then do the same yourself? Well, the second is a lot easier and maybe in some circumstances, just as effective or more so. So you can see culture in that respect as a shortcut, uh, an easy way to get useful behavior. So there is uh, something of an evolutionary paradox in why it's not more widespread than it is. And uh, so some of the things that come up about this are that first, it's, it depends on having a suitable social system. A sperm whale or a chimpanzee um, can reasonably have culture because it has a complex, important social system. They're working with each other, interacting with each other. Whereas, say, a snow leopard probably doesn't have as much culture because they have much, many fewer interactions with other members of their species, and few, very few opportunities to learn. To me, one of the most interesting ideas has, has comes from some of the people who do think about the evolution of human culture. They propose that culture is particularly useful in certain kinds of environments. So when an environment is varying fairly fast, but not too fast, so that um, if things are changing over periods of a bit of a generation, a few years, uh, say for a, for, for a human or a sperm whale or a, ch a chimpanzee, then quite often one may need to make important decisions about behavior because the environment has changed. Uh, however, because it's changing not 
too fast, there's a fairly good chance that somewhat, you know, the information of one's uh, social acquaintances, one's friends, is useful. If the environment's changing really fast, then nobody knows what to do. So uh, that doesn't help. And if it's changing incredibly slowly, then there's no need to change your, change your behavior. So there's this sort of hypothesis that culture becomes most important in these um, situations where the environment is changing pretty fast, but not completely randomly. It turns out that the ocean is of this nature. If you look at how temperature varies in the ocean, how the abundance of different other organisms which may be being eaten in the ocean is of this nature. It's also true that as you move up the food chain, things become, the, the, the variation becomes more like red noise. So for a, the way its prey is varying is probably more optimal for the evolution of culture than it might be for a, a zooplankton. can lead individuals into particular ways of exploiting their environment, particularly feeding, right? So for instance, let, let's take the killer whale. Off the west coast of Canada here, there are three ecotypes of killer whales. One who pretty much entirely eat uh, salmon, one who pretty much entirely eat deep water sharks, and one who eat mammals, uh, seals, porpoises we're pretty certain that those different ecotypes were cultural. So they started off with a, a, you know, a group of killer whales, a matrilineal group, developing a specialty which got ever more specialized and it worked out. They became really good at whatever it was, salmon, sharks, um, mammals. And so they lost the, the knowledge to feed on other things and they stopped feeding on other things. And, and um, and, and, and there may be even a sort of normative thing. We are the killer whales who eat salmon. Eating seals would be ab abhorrent to us. You know, you can see that kind of cultural norm in human societies. So you get this cultural specialization, and then you get genetic evolution on top of that. So for instance, the ones who eat salmon have certain um, genes which promote the uh, digestion of fish which the mammal eaters wouldn't have. That's one kind. Another kind, which um, we, th we see in our sperm whales, is when culture sets up barriers in the social world. So for instance, in our sperm whales, they're living in clans. So a, a clan of sperm whales is a bunch of female sperm whales who associate only with other females in that clan and they learn from each other, and that clan has a way of doing things. And they do not associate with the sperm whales in another clan. And that means the female sperm whale is born into that clan, and she stays in that clan. And that leads, through genetic drift, to mitochondrial signatures, mitochondria being the genes that are inherited just through the mother, of the different clans. So this clan has different mitochondrial DNA to that clan, and that's because of these social barriers which culture has set up.
one of the most difficult tasks that conservation and biologists are faced with is how to divide up populations for conservation. You know, depending on the um, the nation or uh, legal framework, then it may, may become a bit easier. You know, we've got this bunch of creatures, these are their characteristics, and therefore we call them endangered, and that, that brings in a set of laws which protects them. The overwhelming process for doing this has been genetic. In the, in the field of molecular ecology, spend a lot of time and energy in trying to figure out how to do this based on genes. However, there has been a, a movement I've been involved with for quite a lot of years in, in trying to broaden this, to think culture can be important too. So if you think about it, in conservation, we're trying to preserve biodiversity. Biodiversity is the range of things creatures are and do. And some of what creatures are and do is from their culture. And so um, pro protecting the cultural um, diversity may be really important for protecting the overall biodiversity. So for instance, in those killer whales, we have the different populations who eat different things and have different very different ecological impacts. Those distinctions are primarily cultural. And initially, that wasn't recognized. And people were searching for a genetic thing to hang these distinctions on. And sometimes it was clear and sometimes it wasn't. The perspective has grown and I think uh, has been particularly pioneered in an actual legislative sense here in Canada. We should, um, at least in some, in some cases, divide the population up, not so much genetically, but on culturally, on things they're learning from each other and are passing on.